Amen. Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 40 and extending to verse 47. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. And with many other words, he, that is Peter, bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father in heaven, now as we come before your word this day, we would ask for your spirit to be with us, that he indeed would make clear to us your word that he would speak to our hearts both individually and corporately, that the Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified in our midst. We long for him to be praised. We want him to be magnified. We want everything that we are in this time to be about him. So would you please now lift up our chins and set our sights towards the horizon that from your word we might see the glorious Savior. And in seeing him, we might be compelled to run the race that is set before us, looking to him, the author and the perfecter of our faith. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. Well, it's a delight to be back with you this morning. I missed being with you last week. If you were with us last week as we gathered here in worship, you heard a wonderful message from our dear brother Tony Giles on spiritual gifts, looking specifically at verse 43 of our text today. We're looking at verse 44 as we focus our attention on this passage yet again. But I had the privilege last week of being in Shelbyville, Tennessee with a dear brother in the Lord who is a friend of this congregation, David Carrera, He's actually preached from this pulpit just this last year. I was there on a wonderful occasion with his congregation. It is a Latino congregation, a bilingual congregation. The service is done primarily in Spanish. And no, I did not preach in Spanish. And there was no Pentecostal tongue that was given to me so that I could be heard in Spanish. We went through more ordinary means last Sunday, and my brother simply translated for me as I preached, but it was a tremendous treat uh, to be there. 
Uh, David was celebrating 18 years of pastoral ministry there in Shelbyville since they have planted the church and the name is Bessar Shalom of the congregation that is there which is the house of the Prince of Peace. So you translate that. And also they were celebrating a brand new building that the Lord has given to them. An amazing story that I won't go into now but a remarkable gift that the Lord has given to them, quadrupling the size of the building that they were in. A couple of you have been to that building because we have hosted vacation Bible schools there in the summer, and some of you have worshipped there um, at Bessar Shalom. It's a a very small facility, very cramped, way too many people that should have gotten into that room, not a fire marshal's dream for certain. And every time I was there, there was a strong sense of the Spirit and a strong preaching of the gospel that was given by our dear brother. And so they had been praying for some time and brainstorming in a variety of ways. How will the Lord provide for our ever-expanding church and its limited needs? And through an amazing set of providences, the Lord has quadrupled the size of the building that they were in and moved just really essentially across the street from where they were, and amazing campus. It really is a campus that the Lord has granted to them. And so we praise him for the work that he is doing in Shelbyville, Tennessee, through the ministry of David Carrera in our Latino brothers and sisters um, community. And what a delight it is as we gather together this morning in praise to the King. They do in different tongues, just, just about an hour from here. And all across here in Middle Tennessee, there are brothers and sisters in Christ who are gathering from different backgrounds, from different languages, from different ethnicities, from all different types of backdrops. And it's a remarkable thing that there is a cosmic universal body of Christ that does not depend on us being uniform in our likes and our preferences and how we carry ourselves and what we say and the jobs that we do and the communities that we come from. Christianity and the gospel is so powerful and so real and so transformative that it brings people together who otherwise would never be together. You know this experience. You know what it's like to sit with a brother and sister of the Lord who is a missionary, maybe in a foreign land, and break bread with them around the table and through broken English share stories of the work of the gospel. And though you had never met them an hour before, it was like you were, you were kissing cousins at the end of that meal because there was a sweetness in the gospel and a unity that Christ had given that far exceeded the things that should separate us. That's what real fellowship is, brothers and sisters, is when that happens. That's what real fellowship is. Real fellowship is is the kind of thing that we're seeing happen right here in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. An amazing community that is being birthed through the power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I love this section of, of Scripture, and I love being able to take it slow. We've been soaking in it. If you've been with us for the last four weeks, you know that we started off talking about what makes a community like this, and we dug in deep to the nature of the gospel. We'll touch again, of course, on that reality this morning as well. But then we focused a week on the four devotions that you see in verse 42 of the passage before us. The four devotions that this community gave itself to, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of the bread and the prayers. And then last week our dear brother looked at verse 43 with us, 
this reality that awe or fear came upon every soul. It's the idea of the fear of the Lord or the presence of God was so palpable, so real to those who were in the room that awe fell upon them when they gathered together. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it, when that happens? You know, some of you know what that is like. The Lord's granted that to us before here in this time as we worship, this kind of hushed awe that the Spirit of the Lord is with us. He's doing a work among us, a spiritual movement is at work. That's what we're praying for and asking for Him to do this morning. I pray He's already opening up your heart for that kind of spiritual movement. Awe came upon every soul and we're told that the apostles did many wonders and many signs. There were evidences of the work of God in their midst, and it was displayed through powerful signs of healing and transformation, that the Lord was reconciling those who were divided. He was bringing together people that should have never been together. Things that we would have never given hope could have happened were happening. Why? Because it wasn't a power of man. It was a power of God that was among the people. And one of the glorious signs and wonders, not that the apostles were doing exactly, but one of the signs and wonders that we're seeing here in Acts chapter 2 is the fact that a community was being born out of a group of people that should have never been a community by earthly standards. And that tells us that God was with them. That tells us that God was with them. And we want to see this community this morning. We want to understand the nature of true Christian community and fellowship. What does it mean when I describe you as brothers and sisters in Christ and as we together are a faith family and we are united in a cosmic family across time and geography and space and background and all of the many things that often keep us separate, what does it mean for us to be unified in a rich and abiding, even eternal fellowship? That's what we want to explore together today. And we want to ask the Lord to bring that kind of sign and wonder among us, to forge within us this kind of spirit of fellowship. So open your heart to that. That's where the Lord wants to take us this morning. I'm struck by this passage because it's so different from how we usually experience things in the American church today. You know, it's just like as Tony got up this morning and he gave several announcements. Men, you've got an opportunity on Thursday night to gather together. At the men at the Merck, we're going to have incredible breakfast for dinner. I promise bacon will be there. Yes, I'm shamelessly pulling that out as a plea to get you there. The ultimate meat candy will be available on Thursday night. And then on Saturday at 4.30, fun games, bonfire, marshmallow, s'mores, soup, fellowship, all kinds of sweet things will be there on Saturday. Are you coming? Will you be there? Thursday night, will you be there on Saturday? Are you thinking, I got a lot to do. I got a lot going on in my life. Can I make time for these kinds of things? And a lot of what we do in terms of effort and energy, even in organizing the saints to gather together is to appeal through a variety of things that you really ought to be here. You really ought to come. You should do this. And something in the back of your mind says, yeah, I ought to. There's another part in your mind and your heart go, I'm not sure I want to. We'll see how the weekend develops. Let's, let's see if a better offer comes our way. Let's hold off on committing 
to be in these things. So we figure out if this is really what we want to do. I'm struck in the New Testament. When I read the New Testament, I look at the gathering of the saints, how rarely the saints are commanded to gather together. It's a few times, and some of them are worn out, like Hebrews chapter 10. You know, be sure not to forsake the assembling together of the body of Christ. Now, if you look through the scriptures, though, particularly in the New Testament, you're not going to find over and over commands and injunctions to gather together. Now, we should gather together, and it's an appropriate command, and we do see it in the scripture. But here was what was actually happening when the Spirit moved among the people of God. They didn't need that command. They did it. Because they wanted to be together. They wanted to share in Christ together. And they wouldn't dream of missing out on an opportunity to be under the apostles' teaching, the breaking of the bread, the fellowship of the prayers. It was sweet to them. It was to them their life. Their very life. Now, when we begin to think about that, this life together, how does that happen? How do we move from community and fellowship as something we ought to do to something we want to do? And something that is created in such a way where our lives so deeply intersect and are so deeply interwoven that when I engage with you and when you engage with me, there is more life, not less, that we share in together. That there's encouragement and motivation and drive and reminder and renewal that happens when we get together. And it's less like, oh, i got to figure out what I'm going to bring to do this thing I'm supposed to do. And, and it's more like, how do I get to make Christ known to those who I'm going to be in fellowship with? I wonder how he's going to show up in our community when we meet together. And when we talk around the table and when we stand by the fire and when we see each other across the way at communion, what reality in life is going to dawn upon us today that is going to so shot through our souls that we wouldn't imagine not being there for it? You catch the difference in that? It's a really big difference, isn't it? And so what I want to do today is I want you to see what was happening in this community. And I want to encourage us, really, this week and next week, in some practical ways as to how we can pursue this kind of community. And one of the ways that we've got to pursue this is prayerfully asking the Lord to give it. It's a gift of His Spirit. But when we say something like, it's a gift of His Spirit, some of us think in the middle of our mind, oh yeah, well, we can't do much about it. We just got to wait. Got to wait till He just does it. I hope He does it. No, no, no. When you wait on the Lord, you wait like a waiter waits on a table at a restaurant, attentively doing all that is needed and preparing for the moment that he will come. It's not falling asleep. It's waiting on a table attentively and saying, Lord, we want to pursue you and prepare for you, and we know that all of our efforts can't make it happen, but we know that you're pleased to use our efforts. You love to use our efforts to then come and show us your presence and bring your power and build your community among us. That's who we want to be. And that's the community that we're pursuing to be. All right, so let's look at this passage. Let's look at it in just two ways, and we will take a little bit of time next week getting a little bit more practical 
and probably getting a little bit more uncomfortable as we look at some of the implications of this community. But I want you to think about it in just two words and really just two ways this morning. I want you to see that in this text, we're told that community, real community is built through believing and belonging. Through believing and belonging. And here's how the believing and the belonging works. The believing is when we receive the life of Christ together. When we receive the life of Christ together. And that begins at conversion. When we are regenerated. When we gain new life in Christ. The moment that we trust in Him as our Savior and our Lord. There's a new life that begins in us. But that new life is a life that must grow throughout the course of our life within us. It's a seed that's planted in a transformation that begins, but over the course of our life, it must take over more and more and more of who it is that we are. And so we must believe, but we must continue to believe by receiving the life of Christ together. And in fact, today, that's one of the things that we're pursuing, that the life of Christ that is within us by the power of the Spirit would be stirred up. And in its stirring up, it would connect us Together and it would bring together a community that's truly founded or centered in the life of Christ that is within us. So believing, receiving the Christ, receiving the life of Christ, but secondly, belonging. And this is receiving one another with the life of Christ. Okay? That's really important the way I describe that. Because I think that's what we see here in this text. It's receiving one another with the life of Christ. So believing is receiving the life of Christ. Belonging is when we receive one another with that life. With that life. Okay? I want to unpack that as we go along a little bit today. So you can understand that a lot of the times when we're trying to build community, even quote-unquote Christian community, we're doing it in ways... And by means and through power that is not of the life of Christ. To the life of the world. To the life of the world. And so we appeal to the world to build certain community. I want you to see how that's different when we see the uniqueness of what it is that God is doing in the church. So let's start with this believe, receiving the life of Christ together. And this point is taken right from the opening phrase of verse 44 in our text. Those four little words... All who believed. All who believed is how verse 44 begins. Now the question arises, who is the all and what is it that they believe? Who is the all and what is it that they believe? Now to really answer those questions, we've got to go back a little bit in Acts chapter 2. So I hope you have your Bibles open or your iPhones open or your choice of connection with the Word of God this morning. You're going to need it. Acts chapter 2, go ahead and look at verse 5 in the text because I want you to remember who we're talking about. It's really easy to forget the community that we're talking about here. In Acts chapter 2, verse 5, we see the who of Pentecost. The who of Pentecost. The gathering of of Pentecost and this group that was there in Jerusalem at Peter's preaching where 3,000 Uh, came to become or became followers of Christ. Look at verse 2 or chapter 2, verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, notice, from every nation under heaven. 
Now, it's very clear that the text is appealing all the way back to the book of Genesis and that great historical redemptive moment of the Tower of Babel. The text in Acts chapter 2 is certainly appealing to that. You'll remember that at the Tower of Babel in the book of Genesis, there was a confusion of the language of the people, and we have this this people groups that develop around languages that kind of flow out of the story of the Tower of Babel. In Acts chapter 2, we have a reversing of the Tower of Babel. We have all of those eclectic languages and all of those eclectic backgrounds that were formed since the Tower of Babel now coming together back as one. And notice that didn't happen by everybody speaking the same language as if there would be a universal tongue. It happened by redeeming all of the tongues that were now coming out of the Tower of Babel and everyone hearing the message of the gospel in their own tongue. It's really powerful what's happening here in Acts chapter 2. It's remarkable of how the Lord is weaving the story of redemption. And so what we have here is this representation from every nation under heaven that's here. And that's, a, that's really just a fancy way of saying there's a whole lot of people from the then known world in Jerusalem who from a wide variety of background, more than you would even imagine. And in fact, he gets somewhat specific about it. If you look at verses 9 and 10, you'll see he lists a whole bunch of people groups. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and Libyans and Arabians and Romans and the list goes on and on. It's a dizzying array of people. Now what's amazing about this is this wildly diverse people from all over the world became, out of that group, 3,000 became followers of Christ. And this amazing group of people in that moment where they became new creatures in Christ went from being a crowd to being a community. They went from being a crowd to being a community. Now the question is, what is a community? Well, you see it right there in the Word. A community is a collection of people who share a common unity. That's what the word actually means, common unity. And the last phrase here in verse 44 actually speaks to the common unity that this group of Christ followers, after their conversion, are experiencing, though they're from every nation in the then known world. Look at verse 44. It says, And all who believed were together, and notice, and had all things in common. Now, we're going to talk about that next week a little bit more, but I want to just clue you into what's going on with that word common. That word common is something that so many of you in this room know. In fact, we have a Sunday school class named after the Greek word for this derivative of common that's here in Acts chapter 2. It's the Greek word koinonia. It's the word that we often translate fellowship, but it's a word that literally means common, and that makes total sense. Because for true fellowship to happen, you must experience commonness with each other. You must share something in common. To put it another way, you'll never have a community if you don't have some kind of common unity. It just won't happen. It just won't happen. Now, let me illustrate this for you just so you can see how ordinary this really is. When you meet someone new, I met someone new last night at a Halloween party in our neighborhood. There we were with appetizers and costumes and children going into sugar comas all around us. There we were meeting new people. You know, some of the questions that were asked in that first meeting was, what's your name? Where are you from? What line of work are you in? You know, these are the kind of ordinary questions that we ask when we get to know each other. We're familiarizing ourselves with one another. We want to 
We want to know something about them, but there's something actually in those questions that's going on underneath, really subconsciously for everybody who's engaging in that type of communication. And the reality is this, when you're asking those questions, you're also subconsciously looking for a connecting point with that person. You're waiting for them to say something like, yeah, I grew up in Knoxville. Hey, are you a UT fan? Well, me too. You know, or, hey, I, um, I'm, an, I'm an engineer. You know, that's what I studied in college. We're, we're looking for commonality because we know subconsciously that if we're going to experience fellowship and community with this person, at some level, it might be as cheap and as peripheral as things like sports and locations that would be the commonality, but the community is built the moment we both go, hey, you too? Is that true of you too? Well, that's cool. And then all of a sudden, you begin to play a little game. You begin to dig a little bit deeper around that commonality. And all of a sudden, you realize there may be a little cluster of commonalities. And you know what's beginning to happen? Community. Community is beginning to happen because what happened was common unity. Some cohesion around the place that you and I connect begin to be created. Now, what was that really turned this eclectic crowd into a cohesive community was Christ himself. It was Christ himself. This believing in Christ became the hinge through which everyone related and knew one another. Oh, that's really remarkable. I mean, these people have come to Jerusalem from all over the world, and now they didn't know each other just hours and days earlier, and now they can't get enough of each other. And the can't getting enough of each other doesn't have to do with the fact that we root for the same football team or we graduated from the same college or we're in the same geographical location. It has to do that we love insatiably the same Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's fundamentally different. The type of community that is built when you actually share Christ is really different. Because what happens in that believing and in that sharing and in that commonality is that believing begins to give birth to a belonging. A belonging with one another that the world looks at and thinks, those two people should never be hanging out. What in the world would bring those two people together? What, what in the world would be the connecting point between a Libyan and a Roman? What's a Parthian and an Egyptian? doing together. Those people don't even talk the same language and they're striving to get people to communicate with them about Christ and their tears coming down their eyes as they look at each other as to what Christ has done. There is a union and an intimacy and a togetherness that far exceeded the sort of superficial communities that are prevalent and characteristic of worldly community. Now here's the question. If this is all true, why don't we experience this all the time? And then we just need to ask that question. Even within the body of Christ, this believing doesn't immediately usher into the kind of boundary-crossing, central gospel Christ community that we really hunger for and our hearts really desire. At the end of the day, a lot of times we wind up spending most of our energy actually building connections on worldly things rather than on really sharing the thing that really ties us together, which is Christ. I mean, if you look at this group, I mean, you're gonna, if you look around the room, you might 
subtly right now. Take a, take a moment. Look around the room. Right? It's okay. It's all right. I asked you to do it. It's okay. You can do it. Some of these people are your people. Right? Some of these people aren't your people. Right? It's true. Okay? It's true. We, we can be honest. This is a safe community. This is a Christian community. And be honest, some of these people aren't our people, and some of these people are our people. And you know what? We sometimes know, but just by looking at them, we'll make quick judgments. We'll hear their accent. We'll spend three minutes with them after the service in the middle of the aisle, and we'll draw the conclusion glad that's over. <laughs> that's what we'll do. And probably the reason we drew that conclusion is the conversation that we shared didn't actually zero in on the commonality that we share. It focused upon other things that we might not share. All kinds of things that we don't share. You see, there's all kinds of things that we don't share in this room. All kinds of things that we don't share in here. We're not all from the same economic strata. We're not all from the same location. We don't all like the same things. We don't all run in the same circles out in the world. We don't all do the same things. The things that bring a motley crew like us together is, well, it's the gospel. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we spend most of our efforts expending energy trying to connect mainly on things that are not promised in the Scripture to connect us, then we actually might have community, but it may not be Christian. It might not be distinctive because, you know, the world does all of that. That's not unique to us. What's unique to us is the sharing in the commonality that we actually share in Christ. I think what actually begins to happen is we wind up enjoying, rather than true Christian community in the church, we, we wind up creating Christian clubs or Christian cliques. Those are different than real Christian community. Okay, what do I mean by that? Well, a club is a group of people that share a common interest in a particular activity. You know, I mean, some of you men are in, you know, it's hunting season, right? Some of you are in hunting clubs. And as soon as you find out another guy is a hunter, you go, hey, meet me in the woods after work. <laughs> right? But if, if and, and that's good. Is there anything wrong with that? No, not necessarily. Nothing wrong with that. It's not distinctive to Christian community, but it, it's like a club. We both like the same thing. Now, if you have that conversation in the aisle this morning and the guy goes, I've never shot a gun in my life. Crickets. Right? It's like, no, I, 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 I watch Bambi in the afternoon, actually, instead of... <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, like that's what begins to happen in those conversations, right? And what we're working on attachments in those moments, they're not wrong. They're not evil. They're just not particularly our commonality. Our commonality is, is in Christ. And now, if you look in this text, you see that this community was committed to activities. They're listed there in verse 42 the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. The reality, though, is that those activities were not the things that drew them together. 
those activities were the evidence that they had already been drawn together. That's really different. They gave themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and the prayers because they had already been unified in Christ. Those activities were the fruit, the expression, the stirring up of the commonality that they already had in Jesus. They, they didn't simply say, hey, you like reading the Bible? I like reading the Bible. Let's do a book discussion on the Bible because we like reading the Bible. They said, no, we love Christ. We love Christ. This is not just intellectual Bible study for Bible study's sake. This is about knowing our Lord. This is about stirring one another up to the things that we've forgotten. This is about comforting each other by reminding each other that we're sinners and we're in need of grace. This is about bringing healing and mending to one another because we are forgetful that our status and our position is found in Christ. And as we begin to share that kind of commonality, you know what begins to happen? A kind of bond is created because then we enter into each other's life where suffering happens, where difficulty happens. The places where you won't allow someone to enter into your life, the secret sins of your life, all of a sudden come out in that kind of community. Why? Because the gospel is the common denominator and the real you begins to arise in a community like that because you know if we both trust in the gospel you're not going to be surprised that I'm a sinner and I'm all messed up and you know I need God's grace and I need you to remind me because I forget it and a lot of the times I'm really just trying my very best to be a good Christian Martin Lloyd-Jones said he knew that if people had never really understood the gospel, they would say it that way. He said, if you stop someone on the street and he says, are you a Christian? And they'd say, I'm trying to be. He'd say, they have not, not met Christ yet. Christianity is something you try. It's not a particular activity. Christianity is something Jesus has done for us. It's over. It's good news. We're here to revel in a celebratory party. That's why we've got bread and wine. And this is something that we revel in, that we glory in, that we are tied together in. And we're come here to remind each other because every single week it gets shook out of us. Every single week we forget it. Every single week we thought, oh yeah, I've got to do it on my own again. I've got to try harder. And we actually come into this place many, many times with our hearts burdened with all kinds of performance idols, thinking that we've come here to perform an activity so that God will love us more or that people will think that we're good people or that maybe this time I'll rub, I'll rub the rabbit's foot the right way and I'll get what I want this next week. And you know what that is? That is a club that's built around an activity. That's a works-related salvation. Rather than coming here and knowing, Lord, why was I a guest and able to enter while there's room? I'm just astonished that I get to sit in the pews with these people and we together can acknowledge there's no reason why we should be here. And yet the king of the universe has made us his own. And that's what we share together. And we will get this, not do it for just an hour and 20 or 30 minutes, depending on how long I preach. We're going to do it for all eternity. There's no expiration date on the kind of intimacy and the kind of connection that we're going to experience together if our commonality is in Christ. 
You see, that's what's remarkable about this, is when we are working on creating Christian clubs rather than Christian community, it's when we have focused the community on its activities rather than on its Savior. It's fundamentally different. Now, there's another way that this works. And that's when we create Christian cliques. Cliques are different from clubs. You know? You remember this. High school lunchroom. Right? Remember it? You walk in. There's the gamers. You know, they're over here. You know, with their head buried in an iPod. You know, and here, there's the jocks. They're wearing their football uniforms every day to school, you know. <laughs> and there's the fashionistas, you know, back over here in this corner, putting on makeup for each other, you know. And, and you're there with your lunch tray wondering, where should I sit? Okay. Now, the thing that's different about a clique than, say, a club is a clique is an exclusive group that has more to do with about the kind of ethos, the kind of special interests, the kind of features that you have as a person, and less about a particular activity. Okay, it's pretty easy to get into the chess club. You know, you just kind of got to play chess. That's how you get in. That's how you connect with people. It's through the activity. Cliques are a little different. They're exclusive. Clicks happen when you realize you're in that conversation with someone who, apart from anything that you're saying or doing, is sizing you up to see whether you're in or out. And you don't even know what they're weighing, what credentials you would need to either get in or get out because it's unwritten. It is just an air, an ethos, a standard that kind of works in the head and the heart, and you just know when you're on the outside, and you just know when you're on the inside. All right, that's kind of how cliques work. Now, if we think of it this way, clubs you get into because you do something. Cliques you get into because you are something. Because you are something. You're the popular kid. You're the cool kid. You're the wealthy folks. You're the rich folks. You have status. You have position. And because surrounding that particular ethos and those particular collection of features, now we've got something to build on or we don't, depending on what kind of person that you are. It's what Lewis called the inner ring in that very famous essay he gave. He says, we must learn to overcome this desire to be on the inside or the inner ring. He says, the quest to be on the inner ring will ultimately, no matter who you are, break your heart unless you learn how to break the ring. Unless you learn how to break the ring. Now here's, here's what's actually happening in this collection of people. And we learn this later throughout the book of Acts. We actually learn this from historians. Do you know that one of the most persuasive and appealing and attractive things about Christian community in the early church was the fact that it was so remarkably inclusive? Nowhere could you go where there were rich and poor together, slave or free, male or female, Jew or Gentile. Nowhere could you go where jocks and geeks sat at the same table. The only in the gospel, only in a Christian community in early Rome was this expression of a group of people that brought you in not based upon what you did or on who you are. But they connected 
over what Christ did and on who he is, which was equal for all of those who had trusted in him. We had nothing on each other. Because you're in Christ and I'm in Christ. And I'm no better if I'm wealthy and in Christ and you are poor and in Christ. In fact, if I'm wealthy in Christ and you're poor in Christ, then it's my calling to act like Christ and in acting like Christ and in sharing our commonality together. What's mine is yours and you can have it if you need it. And what's yours is mine. And you can have it if you need it. A commonality began to express itself out of the spirit of the gospel. Because it does not matter in here if you are the CEO of your company and the most loved person in Middle Tennessee. Or you got up this morning out of the rain and crawled out of a cardboard box and barely stumbled into this place. Both of you are common in Christ. And the equality of that brought in the gospel begins to be the commonality through which the community receives one another. You see, that's the life of Christ. What would happen if when you looked at someone's face and you spoke to them in conversation and you acknowledged what we receive from one another is our commonality in Christ? I don't have to actually look for all of the worldly ways we may be connected to see whether I want to spend some time with you. I know enough about you that you are made in the image of God. You are a sinner. You're a lover of the Lord Jesus Christ. And like me, as his disciples, we're stumbling forward. And we are just amazed that he's given to us his Holy Spirit. And he's promised to take us all the way home. Can you believe it? We're going to do this forever together? What would that be like? That's here. And all came upon every soul. Everybody was beginning to see it. Everybody was beginning to experience it. And one after another, they received the life of Christ and they were receiving one another with that life. And it was just what Jesus said would happen. By this they will know that you are my disciples. That you love one another. Rodney Stark, one of the great historians of our time who writes a lot on Christianity said it was that reality, the love of God's people, their intimacy and their fellowship both inside and towards those who are outsiders that became the most persuasive and the most convincing reality about the gospel. These people got it through the power of the Spirit. And it's our prayer that the Lord would begin to work that reality into this community. And so what he's actually calling us to to do today is to think about who it is that we're moving towards and why. And who it is we're moving away from and why. And how does the gospel change it all? I want you to think about those things. Who are you moving towards and why? What's the real reason? Who are you snubbing? And why? And how would the gospel change it all? As we read Acts 2, these 40 days together, as many of you have done faithfully, we've 20 days left before our our anniversary together. I want you to ponder that question. I want you to begin to move towards whatever the answer is for you. 
And like Luther, let's become repenting repenters over the fact that we are really more of a Christian club or a clique than a community. And by God's grace, let's pray you'll change that. Father in heaven, we would ask you now to humble us. Humble us enough to really be honest to answer that question. That's not an easy question. Because when we start looking at the people we really, really want to move towards and really, really want to accept us and the people we really want to create some distance with, it probably says a lot about us. And it's probably not pretty. I pray you would help us with that. And you'd begin by exposing that sin and showing us in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ that there is a better way, that the gospel creates a different community. Make this a different community, known by its commitment to Christ and love. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.